This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 11th. Today, a long-ago sperm donor learns the perils of genetic testing and how dogs can sniff out diseases, including COVID. So Bryce Cleary is a middle-aged guy uh, from Corvallis, Oregon. He's a, a doctor, a family practitioner, and he's a hometown guy. He grew up in Corvallis, born and raised, raised four sons and an adopted daughter there. Uh, he's got a handful of stepchildren and step-grandchildren. When I first met him, he told me that he was basically the most boring guy ever. <laughs> and he didn't mean it uh, in a negative way. I think he liked being a very boring guy. That's Kyle Swenson, a reporter at The Post. In November, he went to Oregon to spend some time with Bryce. The one kind of quirky thing about Bryce's life was that when he was in medical school in Portland in the late 80s, he had donated sperm to a fertility clinic in Portland. Between lectures, they'd always people would come in and ask us to volunteer for various things. And I, I actually volunteered for a lot of stuff. I had like you know different studies that they would do, and depending on what the study was, they pay you a certain amount to be in it. And, what type of other stuff study for volunteering? Um, did a lot of EKG, EEGs. Mm-hmm. Um, and sleep deprivation studies. But it was well known that Mm -hmm. they would hit up the first years every year for donors. So one of the things that that appealed to him about donating was that he was told it would be, his samples would be used at most in five pregnancies. And he says he was also told that all the pregnancies would be on the East Coast. I said, ah, I'm nervous about this because... You know, I don't want to have a bunch of kids running around. Mm-hmm. And it was immediate. It was like, oh, don't worry about that. That's not, that's not something you have to worry about. And at this time in his life, he hasn't even been past the Mississippi River. East Coast seems far away. This is a chance to help. And so he was, he was ready to do it. It was totally kind of out of the goodness of his heart. And he also got 40 bucks for every sample, which he told me, you know, as, you're, as a struggling med student, always came in handy. And so he did it for about a year, and, and then he stopped kind of because his own life was kind of falling into place. He had gotten married. He was getting busier and busier with med school. Eventually, he becomes a doctor. He moves back to his hometown and really put it out of his mind for decades because in, in his way of thinking, it was kind of this abstract thing he had done a long time ago. You know, It was just something that he thought was in his past. So in March 2018... Bryce was at his medical practice, and he ended up getting an email. And he had just recently joined Ancestry.com, like millions of other people around the world. And he had gotten his results back about his genealogical background. And within a few days, he gets a message on there in his inbox. And it's a message from a young woman who, according to Ancestry, uh, was his daughter. 
you could imagine someone in that position maybe not answering the message or closing down all their online accounts and kind of hiding. But for him, it was a very moral moment. You know, he thought, what responsibility do I have in this situation? The young woman had asked about his family history, his health history. And I remember he said to me, you know, who am I to to not provide this information? And that really began a relationship between the two. And it turned out she had a sister who was also a product of Bryce's sample. And So he had two daughters. Two daughters. So in his mind, these are two of the possibly five donor children that he has. And he develops a relationship with them. They swap messages. He learns more about their lives. And there's definitely a connection there. And in his mind, he thinks, well, these are two. This is okay. You know, it's a little strange, but it becomes very positive for him. You know, he develops affection for them and realizes that if anybody else comes forward, any of these other five that he thinks might be out there, he could be willing to also have a a relationship with them. And so then what happens after that? So in January 2019, he's at work again, and he gets an email, and it's from another woman. Her name was Robin, and she lived in Tennessee. And she said, I also am one of your donor kids. Uh, Hmm. I just wanted to reach out. I just wanted to thank you. I was curious about our family history. So this is the third of potentially five donor children. Yes. So he thinks, here's number three. And again, he responds, and he's friendly and, and is actually happy to be contacted. But then this is where things take a turn, because a few hours later, he gets an email again at work, and it's from another young woman named Allison. And she tells him that she's also a donor child. Oh, wow. But what she tells him is that he's been misled about this entire situation, that everything he knows is wrong, because he doesn't have five. He has as far as she knows, 14, and they all live within a couple hours of where he is right now. Some have even gone to school, the same schools with his kids, and worked in the same buildings as he has worked in. Oh, wow. What is his reaction to this email? Total shock and confusion, because literally for his entire life, he's been thinking that there's maybe five. They're not here, they're on the other side of the country, and it's not something that I have to worry about. And this is a guy already with a a large family, and, you know, he's been a father and a good father, and he knows that that role involves being there for your kids and being a presence in their lives. And so now to know that there's about 14 people with his genetics running around, you know, he he feels that he might have some type of responsibility towards those people. And, but at the same time, He's terrified of getting involved, and he's wondering, how much do I personally have to spend emotionally? You know, can I really have a relationship with 14 people? And that even though these two women came out initially saying that, that they were two of his donor children and that he seemed receptive then to talk to them and have a relationship and, and talk about things like family medical history and stuff like that, that once you extend that out to 14-plus children, that I would imagine he maybe started to feel differently. Absolutely. And what was the most kind of shocking thing to him, I think, is that he doesn't know where all these people are. You know, he now every time he walks into a room, he's looking around. If somebody looks kind of like him, if they have the same nose and the same eye and the same forehead. You know, he's he's always looking at people's faces because he just doesn't know. And as things have developed, he's learned that he probably will never know how many kids are out there. In fact, 
as of now, the the number is up to 19 that we know of. Oh, my gosh. 19 is a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot of Christmas cards. What was it like for some of the the donor children who found this person and then have this person maybe not necessarily want to have an extensive relationship with them? It's really fascinating because before Bryce found out about all this, his donor children had actually been connecting with each other over the years. And it actually formed a kind of separate family amongst themselves. And this is best illustrated by a, a young woman named Allison who had sent him the email letting him know that they were at least 14. You know, she had learned, she grew up in Vancouver, Washington, right over the river from Portland. She learned that she was a, a donor child when he, she was 19. Um, when I turned probably around 16, I would say, I started noticing things. Like, um, you know, my sister and my brother looked just like my dad and I didn't. And, um, and then as I got a little bit older and I started getting ready to have kids, I started asking a lot of questions with my mom. You know, does dad's health, do I have to worry about dad's health issues with my kids kind of thing. And so finally, after lots of interrogating and denying, then she finally decided to tell me that they had used a donor. And, you know, she told me I, did, I wasn't shocked. You know, sometimes kids learn this and they it feels like their life has been a lie. But in her mind, she told me that she felt like... It was like... My dad and mom wanted me so bad that they had me, mm-hmm. no matter what. And my dad, I would have never guessed by the way I was treated that I wasn't my dad's kid. Like, I was 100% his. Did that take you a while? And so she was actually never very curious about her donor father. She was more interested in siblings. And there are national databases and registries uh, for donor siblings where they can connect using the information they get from the clinics. And through that process, she ended up connecting with a sibling who lived in San Francisco, and they became incredibly close. And her and I connected, and um, we just became really close, like really fast. She lives in California. We met up probably two months after we talked for the first time. It was insane to talk to her. Then the two of them decided that they would try to find as many of their siblings as possible, and eventually they connected with a third and a fourth. She was very proactive about finding her siblings. So she put her DNA on every genealogical website. Whenever she matched with somebody, she would reach out immediately. And she built this kind of really strong network of siblings. And so for them, this was this kind of wonderful connection to have, you know, to find out you have a sibling who has the same hair as you, who hates cilantro, who loves Harry Potter, whose mannerisms are the same. You know, Allison, her mother had passed away and her donor sisters and brothers were there for her. Uh, my sister got me through my divorce, you know, mm-hmm. we, we connected with that. When she has a hard day, she calls me and vents to me. And, and know, over time, Allison went to the clinic or the hospital where Bryce had donated, and she asked, well, how many brothers and sisters are out there? Can you at least give me a number? And all they would tell her, according to her, is that your donor hit the regional cap of 14 pregnancies. Hmm. And then his samples were sent out of the region. So that's why she knew that there were at least 14. For Allison in particular, she got very mad when she realized that Bryce allegedly had been misled or or didn't understand the full extent of how many kids he has because she felt that that kind of tainted this beautiful thing she had with her siblings. I was so mad because at this point, I feel like before, you know, he did this amazing gift for our families and 
my parents were able to have a child, and I'm already frustrated at the fact that there's so many siblings because that's really overwhelming in general, and I'm frustrated that we have to wait for them to find us pretty much, but then to find out that they did it in a lie, that he didn't sign up for this, and that they screwed him over, like, it's nasty. It's really nasty. And it's a lot to process to know that, like, this man that you feel like gave such a gift to your family, to know that he didn't do it willingly, really. And so how does Allison feel about the fact that she's brought together this community of people in a way that is really valuable to her, really valuable to her her donor siblings, makes them feel like they have a bigger family, but that what she's done has essentially also caused this person a lot of pain. Well, it's it's really interesting because, like Bryce, Allison had a moral decision to make, right? Is it better for this guy not to know the truth? And for Allison, the, the moral calculus is very clear. It's like, no, he needs to know. He has to know about this. And for Bryce, the moral decision is now, I know about this. I can't take it back. Like, what is my responsibility here? What do I owe these kids? And he says, you know, in my brain, I don't think I owe them anything. I gave them the genetics that created their life. But, you know, my heart, these people have your genetics. You want to be with, you know, you want to get to know them. You want to understand them. You want to be a part of their life. Even with the short time that I met Allison, mm-hmm. I, I feel this, I feel a bond. Mm-hmm. But there's, I always want to respect their boundaries, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't know what those are. But then when I realized how many there could be, I really had to rethink and so what is the state of things right now? D- does he communicate with them? Uh, so in October uh, 2019, Bryce filed a lawsuit against the uh, hospital system where he had been a donor. And really after that, he kind of shut down. He you know, pulled down his Facebook page. He got off Ancestry. He began seeing a therapist. It just all began to feel very claustrophobic to him. People now knew about this. It was public, and he felt, you know, people were staring at him in church and maybe didn't understand what was going on. And It was upsetting because he realized everybody knew about it or maybe they knew part of it or were confused by it or that these people now all thought he was a professional masturbator, as he told me. So it was embarrassing, and, and it was hard for him to to think about how every time he's walking in church, people might be looking at him and thinking something. And, you know, he's a private guy, and it just, he wasn't ready for that level of kind of scrutiny. I think he, in a way, he struggles about knowing. I think he regrets knowing the extent of all this and, and kind of, in a way, wishes he didn't know. I don't know, uh, moving forward, what that, that's going to look like, but I certainly would love to see her again and, and interact with her again, if it's okay with her. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to do that with a hundred people. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to have that emotional capital. With with 17 people or how many it could be. It seems like we're at this time where people are 
more commonly using these these platforms like Ancestry.com or 23andMe to get their genetic data out into the world and, and to potentially connect with people that they didn't realize that they were connected with. And I feel like we see a lot about the potential opportunities for that and, and people being able to find family in places that they didn't know were there. But it also begs a question about what rights people have to not know about those things or, or what it is like for people who would would prefer to not have to open up those doors. This is like a story about knowledge, you know. How much do we really want to know? And we have all these technologies now that we can, that allow us to know so much more about ourselves and our families. And there's a price for that, right? It can change your life. Once you know that, you can't unknow it. And I think we embrace these technologies without necessarily thinking about, well, what happens if what I find out I don't want to know? I wish I wouldn't have known. And I think that's important to consider. Kyle Swenson is a reporter at The Post. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. They race around the wheel, thrusting their noses at each of the cans, snuffling into each of the cans. And when they find the one that is positive, they stop dead still, head goes up, tail goes up, and they stare until they're released. August 6, 2020, and session one, first wheel. So here at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, we have been working with medical detection dogs for about seven years and really starting to understand how dogs can help us uh, detect odors that people have associated with diseases it was kind of natural for us to move into asking the question of whether or not dogs could detect an odor associated with COVID-19. There's definitely a lot of hairy, enthusiastic, tail-wagging enthusiasm about this, this whole process. I am Dr. Cindy Otto. I am the executive director of the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, and I am a professor of working dog sciences and sports medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm uh, Frances Steed Sellers, and I'm a writer on the America's Desk at the Washington Post. So what took you to Greencastle, Pennsylvania? Yes, way out there in rural Pennsylvania. I learned that the University of Pennsylvania was working with dogs to try to teach them to recognize a distinctive smell in the coronavirus, which could potentially be used to diagnose people who are COVID positive. Um, and they've done work with other diseases, had to close down because of the pandemic. And so the vet who works there, Cynthia Otto, um, arranged with a dog trainer out in Greencastle, Pennsylvania, to use his training facility. So we were out in the country with a guy who does a lot of work with uh, military dogs, dogs that 
are trained to sniff for drugs or explosives. And you see those often in airports. I think most people don't realize that dogs can also recognize the smell of certain diseases, which is what we were doing out there. So when you first got to this facility, what was it like? What did it look like? Yeah, well, it's a dog training facility. It's a barn in the middle of some very sort of rustic looking buildings. In the barn were four areas cordoned off with curtains, sort of green sheets of probably plastic drapes of some sort. And within each of these is what's called a a scent wheel or a training wheel. I think they probably had eight spokes. And on the end of each spoke was a metal can. And inside each of these cans was a distinctive product. It could be cake batter. It could be urine that was positive for coronavirus. It could be negative urine or along the lines of the cake batter, something else tempting for dogs, kibble. And while we were there, each of the Labradors was allowed to enter the training area and they went zipping around the wheel very, very quickly, sniffing at all the cans on the end. And when they found the can that was positive, that contained the positive urine, they stopped. They'd had the smell imprinted on them by the trainers. So at the very beginning of the training process, the dogs are offered a lot of a variety of smells and the trainers then know when they're offering them positive urine and they reward them for smelling it. So the dogs say, hey, this is great stuff. I get kibble whenever I sniff, put my nose up and wag my tail or stand very alert when I sniff this particular smell. And then after that, once it's imprinted on them, they will go and find that smell and stop beside it and alert the trainer that they found the smell. And they're doing it with considerable accuracy, more than 90% accuracy. You know, this kind of makes sense to me. As you said, there are so many dogs that have been bomb-sniffing dogs and have been used for other other forms of detecting things like drugs. But but what is it about the possibility that they can detect viruses? Like, how are dogs equipped to do that? And why is it that viruses would give off a scent that a dog could pick up? Well, the first thing is that dogs are very good smellers, right? They, they have a very good olfactory sense. So dogs are really incredible in the their anatomy and their physiology, everything that they have been built to do is to explore the world with their noses. They have 50 times as many smell receptors as we people do. So they're sensitive the whole time to a whole world of smells that we pretty much aren't aware of. We go about our lives without spending much time thinking about our noses. The other part of this is that when we get sick, our smell changes somewhat. So If you think historically, doctors use their noses sometimes to diagnose, for example, diabetes, Hmm. the smell of urine changes. And actually, if you think about it, if you suddenly have bad breath or you start smelling, it's probably a good reason to go and check with the doctor now. So we do know that our bodies give off or shed different molecules when we become sick. That isn't very surprising. I think what does surprise people is how very accurately dogs can be trained to pick up the distinct odor print of a given disease. So the dogs that I was working with were new to this, but the trainers there had already been working with early stage ovarian cancer. Hmm. They had been able to diagnose through scent ovarian cancer in women who didn't yet have any symptoms, which of course is a, a remarkable, remarkable achievement and has great potential for a disease that is hidden for such a long time. Much the same thing has happened with lung cancer. Dogs can pick up what they're called the volatile organic compounds that we shed when we become sick. So then how would having dogs that can sniff viruses or or even other diseases, cancer, how would that actually work in the real world? Like, are we trying to get to a world in which we have hospitals where you have dogs that are just constantly sniffing urine samples? Or what would be the actual practical application of this? 
So there are two things. One is that you could imagine dogs going through airports and sniffing people as they arrive. And that is actually being done in Dubai. They aren't exactly sniffing the people, but one in 10 people who come into the airport at the moment offers a sample of sweat. And a, a nurse or a doctor or a medical professional takes a sample of underarm sweat and then on a, on a piece of fabric or whatever, offers it to the dogs and then they do a random sampling. So that's a potential. You could imagine dogs going into nursing homes or schools. But the, the other technological change that's coming along is electronic noses. And these are basically far more sophisticated versions of a breathalyzer. A breathalyzer can, in, in essence, sniff alcohol on somebody's breath. It's picking up the molecules. There are electronic noses for explosives. You don't need to have a dog with you all the time. Once the dog has done the proof of concept, which is what these dogs are doing, you can go through chemists and physicists are working very hard on producing an electronic version that, of course, can work 24-7. It doesn't need a handler. No health risk either to the animal or the handler. And, and I would imagine it would also be easier to scale because it sounds like these dogs, the training that is involved with them is time-consuming and probably expensive. Yes, very, very expensive. Now, that could become become cheaper, but all the same, you're talking about a lot of effort put into a, a few animals at the moment. So basically what these animals are doing are a proof of concept showing, demonstrating that there is a smell associated with the disease. And how close are we to any of these solutions becoming more widespread, either the dog-inspired electronic sniffers or having dogs you know, in airports around the country, that becoming more of what we see on a day-to-day -day basis, the same way that we see bomb-sniffing dogs going through the airport. That is something it's very hard for scientists to answer at the moment because they want to be sure they get it right. And doing it wrong, as one vet said to me, could be worse than not doing it at all. They need to be sure of safety. What I was seeing was being done in a very controlled atmosphere, a controlled facility. Scaling it up so that you had dogs around an airport is, an, is, an, is a huge step. So I think this is a, you know, we're entering a period of transition where there's very good research going on at Penn that could lead to advances in this area. I don't think anybody is quite ready to put a date on when it will happen. Francis Steed Sellers is a senior writer on the America's Desk at The Post. And now, one more thing about disease-sniffing dogs. Hi, Harley. <laughs> Back in February, our producer, Jordan Marie Smith, went to visit a two-year-old beagle named Harley. And tell me, you're Jordan. Jordan Marie, Jordan Marie. yes. It's a... I'm Julia. Julia. I actually work in the hospital in the so I first found out about Harley by way of my close friend who lives in Greenville, North Carolina, which is also my hometown. She told me about this cute dog that runs around the local hospital and just greets everyone and also does like a really important job. Are you working in the lab? I do. Okay, yes. nice. And I'm friends with her. We went to high school together. Yeah, here. that's so awesome. I was sending her pictures. I was like, look at this amazing dog. Yeah. The special thing about Harley is that she is a dog that can sniff out Clostideroides difficile, also known as C. diff. And it's basically a bacterial disease that 200,000 people every year get in hospitals in the United States. It costs hospitals a lot of money. It costs insurance companies a lot of money. It makes the stay of the patient a lot longer. I mean, it can be fatal for patients, if, especially if they're elderly or um, get severely dehydrated. 
That was Laura Pittman. She's Harley's owner. You could go into the hospital for a surgery or something and, and pick it up. And it's not, you know, it's not that the hospitals are, are doing anything wrong. It's just something that's hard to clean and contain. So Laura told me that Harley helped change protocols in the hospital where she works. The environmental teams changed sort of their whole cleaning practices. So they've gone to disposable mop heads. They've changed the chemicals they're using and then looking at, you know, plastic carts versus stainless steel and and what stays cleaner and all those things. So Harley detects the spores, not the odor that the nurses and and everybody would smell. And the spores can live on a surface for like 10,000 years. So if they clean a room and there's still some on the bed railing, it's odorless and invisible and you'd have no way to know. So you could go in there and have a surgery and the last patient could have had C. diff and There could have been a spot they missed, and you could get C. diff. So if Harley goes in and checks, we can clean it in that moment. So Laura tells me Harley has never missed C. diff once. She's just that good. So it made me wonder why other dogs haven't been trained to sniff out C. diff. We had to go through animal use program at East Carolina University, and we had to make sure that she had all of her shots and that she's clean and et cetera, et cetera. She's also on a lead. That was Dr. Paul Cook. He's actually one of the people who got the idea to get a dog trained that can sniff out C. diff. First of all, we had to go through a lot of hoops to get Harley in the hospital. This took a little bit over a year. Dr. Cook says that what makes it hard to replicate Harley's job in other hospitals across the country is that it costs a lot of money. And frankly, there are a lot of hoops people have to go through to make sure it happens. But Dr. Cook believes there will be more dogs like Harley, at least in eastern North Carolina. Her owner now is planning on actually breeding her because she's very good at this. Unlike the dogs that Francis and Martine talked about, Harley can't sniff out COVID-19. That means that she's been furloughed from the hospital for the time being. For now, Harley's just spending her days with Laura, her owner, and acting like a regular dog. It's been a fun ride. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer with Post Reports. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.